the air and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again. I'm Jason Drury, welcoming you to another of the continuing series of film, TV and video game composer interviews on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Carlos Rafael Rivera is an Emmy award-winning composer for film and television. A protégé of Randy Newman, he earned a DMA in composition at USC's Thornton School, where he studied with Donald Crockett and Stephen Hawke. As a guitarist, he has performed on stage as an opening act for The Who at the Hollywood Bowl, recorded studio sessions for Island Def Jam and Universal Records, and had songs featured on Netflix's Firefly Lane, ABC Scrubs, MTV and VH1. He has served as composer in residence with the Miami Symphony Orchestra and was a musical consultant for Invitation to World Literature, an educational series funded by the Anna Berg Foundation and produced by WGBH and is a sought-out guest composer and lecturer throughout the globe. He is also assistant professor and director of the Media Writing and Production Programme at the acclaimed Frost School of Music at the University of Miami. Carlos first met Oscar-nominated film and TV maker Scott Frank over 15 years ago when Scott responded to an ad for music lessons that Carlos had posted at the local Pasadena music store. What started as guitar lessons grew into a years-long friendship and eventually led to an amazing collaborative partnership beyond the composer's wildest dreams. Their first collaboration was the action-drama feature A Walk Among the Tombstones in 2014, starring Liam Nielsen. Carlos went on to score Scott's Western drama Godless in 2017, for which he won a primetime Emmy for the main title theme, and also earned a nomination for his score. Their third and latest collaboration is the Netflix limited series The Queen's Gambit.
psychological drama series is based on the novel of the same name by Walter Tevis and follows an orphan in the late 1950s Kentucky named Beth Harmon, played by Anna Taylor-Joy, who discovers she has an incredible talent for chess. Carlos read the novel and realised he needed to lean the score on classical convention as it referenced Beth listening to classical music. He also incorporated a darker, moody tone to symbolise her battle with addiction. Carlos's greatest challenge was how to keep non-chess players interested and his solution was to make the audience feel the same emotions and intensity that the players felt through his sweeping, victorious score. In October 2020 for the Cinematic Sound Radio Network, I had the pleasure of talking to Carlos Rafael Rivera via Zoom at his home in Miami, Florida. During the interview, we talked extensively about his score for The Queen's Gambit, his working relationship with Scott Frank, and we talked about the two other collaborations with the writer-director, Welcome Under Tombstones and Godless. Also during the show, you'll be hearing music from all three productions, but extensively from The Queen's Gambit, which is, in my opinion, one of the scores of 2020. Rafael Rivera, tell us about The Queen's Gambit. Well, The Queen's Gambit is a story of an orphan girl in Kentucky in mid-50s who uh, discovers she has an affinity for chess. The story follows her life over the course of almost close to a decade or so, or a little bit more. She ends up, by the mid-60s, going to the USSR during the Cold War and beating the Soviets at their own game. And it's one of those stories that is enthralling because the main character is very, very captivating. It's, it's one of those things that, as a book, it's a great novel. It's by Walter Tevis, one of the great authors. He wrote Man Who Fell to Earth, The Hustler. And so he understands how to write characters and, and tell a good story. It seems like chess is the canvas upon which the story is told. So getting to write something musically about this is, brings quite a few challenges. Tell us about your relationship with Scott Frank. Um, I have actually been working with Scott Frank for the last, you know, let's say eight years uh, professionally. And the first project I worked with him was A Walk Among the Tombstones with Liam Neeson. The second project I worked with him was called Godless, and it came out like three years ago on Netflix. And so this was our second Netflix uh, project, and it was also a limited series. So this is our second approach to story where you're looking at a seven-episode arc adaptation of a novel. And he was just awesome to work with. I mean, I've known him for a much longer time. So getting asked by Scott to work on something is always a dream. My relationship with Scott started as uh, his guitar teacher, but anyway. How did you meet Scott Frank? 
Well, what happened was in 2003, I had been in a rock band and that was signed and basically dropped. And so I had started my master's degree in music composition at the University of Southern California. And then I um, got signed to this record label, Universal. Then that journey happened and it, it ended. There was nothing else to do. So I was going back to teaching music, which was what I had always done before and still do now. And I was looking for private students. I was teaching at a place called the Pasadena Conservatory. I was going back to USC to get finish my master's degree. And I put a flyer out in the old town Pasadena, which is where I lived. And um, Scott Frank happened to find my name in a binder. And he, um, I went to his office for the first private lesson. He was one of many private students that I had at the time. So I walked in and I saw a poster for Little Man Tate, Minority Report, Out of Sight, and Dead Again. And I was like, what, what do you do? And he goes, well, I'm a writer. I, I, wrote, I wrote those. I goes, really? Are you kidding me? You know, like I couldn't, I was like kind of fanning out in the office and I realized I'm supposed to teach him guitar. So I'll shut up, you know. So we started lessons. I got home. I told my wife. She's like, okay, cool. Uh, but it was uninteresting at the time. It was just like a cool thing for me as a film nerd. I was blown away because Dead Again happened to be one of my favorite movies um, of the time. I just loved the screenplay and I loved the story. And I even liked Robin Williams' character in it. So that relationship started with guitar lessons. It was just it was something that was going on. And he was not, he had not directed anything. He was a writer. And when he went to do his first project, he said, I'm going to do a movie and I've got James Newton Howard, who's going to score it. It's called The Lookout. And I go, oh, my gosh, I'm so excited. Okay, I'm going to help you learn how to talk to the composers so you guys can agree. I almost felt like I was going to be like a coach for how to communicate with uh, composers. But I was very ignorant about it, really, compared to what I've learned now as to what to really do. What I've learned now is that the directors don't really need to ever have to talk to the composers musically. The opposite is true. I think our job as composers is to learn story and character and tone and be able to speak to directors in their language, in the language of film. And that is something that I've learned over the years, actually. But it was how it started. We met uh, through guitar lessons. How did you become involved with the Queen's Gambit? Well, what happened is I got a call like a couple of years ago. It was like in April of 2018 from Scott where he asked about, um, he, he said, listen, it looks like this is going to be the next thing we do with Netflix. So I'm working on the script and uh, I'll get it to you at some point. And I immediately read the book like within the day. I like devoured it. It's a really good read. It's a quick one too. It's not a big book. And I immediately started getting worried because I realized that Walter Tevis, the author, mentioned a lot about classical music and in some of the descriptions about the games that he does is like oh it, it was like chamber music and at some point while Beth Harmon is in the apartment in the novel where she's with some college kids and she she ends up staying behind she plays Vivaldi in the novel in the show itself they used pop music from the time which I thought was quite appropriate but I started thinking that there's a sort of redundancy of classical music like it's just kind of it's a through line in the story and I think I'm gonna have to do it and probably also because it lent itself to the game itself which is a very old game and it also has the idea of a move and a counter move so the idea of a melodic line and a counter melodic line started to make sense to me as how I would musically approach it 
And that was the cues for Scholar's Mate, Training of a Mr. Shovel, and Ceiling Games from the 2020 Netflix miniseries The Queen's Gambit, with a new score composed by my guest today, Carlos Rafael Rivera. Now, Carlos, what are the highlights of this score? Is the music you compose for the chess matches that Beth plays throughout the series? Did you come up with a strategy how you're going to score the chess matches? One of the things about scoring the games is that I initially thought that I was going to have to do a game template. Like every time she played, a kind of music would play. Like, you know, it's like, oh, we're in game music. And I was wrong. Actually, quite wrong because I was told that by the director. So I would be showing music that I thought was quite good. And I think some of the sounds and the colors I was using, a particular sound in the piano that I was liking, it was this library called Noir that I thought was really cool because it had this very wooden sound and I thought of wooden chess pieces and, and there is a constant issue of time. There's always a clock and... So it felt like I was inside of some sort of big wooden clock. That was sort of one of the images I was having. But these are all motivational things. These are not things you talk about with the director. But you're just kind of motivating yourself to write. That survived. I had, there's this other library that was really cool by a company called Spitfire that's called the Kepler Orchestra. And they have this, and I really like the idea of her when she's looking up at the ceiling and playing chess in the ceiling that it's just sort of this weird kind of like a car passing by like this idea of like the visuals were coming i don't know it was it's it doesn't make sense when i say it out loud but to me it made sense when i imagined it even from the book how it was described but the games themselves i started using some of these colors but using a kind of music that was almost choreographing the moves only and what i realized that over time i mean it took months to get it right i think is that i had to be scoring music contextually so whatever was happening before that game was informing how to score the game so if it was beth and it's the whole story is beth's point of view she's in on camera almost in every scene and so whatever she's going through if she's in like with someone or if she's upset or she just wants to beat them or she whatever it is that's going on that would take on the tone of the game so each chess match and there was 20 some odd chess games that I had to score in the show throughout the seven episodes had to be its own musical entity, if that makes any sense. In fact, your music makes you become involved in the game, in my opinion. You, I don't know what's going on with a chess game, but I know the emotions going through Best Mind through your music. It feels at times, listening to the music and seeing the visuals, it's like Rocky for chess. <laughs> when, well, you know, it's funny. I, I really didn't even realize this was that kind of movie until I got the final episode, the final assembly. I'd read it and I was aware that there was a game with Borgoff, but the idea or the thought that has been actually permeating a lot now as people have been reacting to it, of, of it being like Rocky, or Ch Rocky for chess, if you will, was didn't really happen until I saw the final episode's assembly of the final game that she has with Borgoff. And I saw it and I got emotional. Like I hadn't done my job yet. I hadn't written any music and I cried. Like I, I was just so taken by how well it made it was. The the drama, the pacing, the editing by Michelle Tesoro, the cinematography by Steven Meisler, even the sound, some of the sound design was already there by Wiley Stateman. And of course, the acting, the direction, you know, by Scott. And it's a 
great little set piece. That whole game is just awesome to watch. And it was working before I did anything. And that's when it hit me. I was like, oh, this is, we're, we're in Rudy land. We're in Hoosiers and or Rocky World, you know? And I've even thought at some point, it's like over the top. And, and that's an old reference for like a few people, but it's an old Sylvester Stallone movie with, a, with the actor kid, you know, who's like, come on, dad. You, he was an arm wrestler and they have that final game. So I had all these ideas started to come up about, oh, it's, these are the stakes. We're, in, we're making this kind of underdog story. And that was really one of the great thrills for me because I got a chance to do that, which I never thought this was. And I'd done my homework, man. I'd read the novel. I saw all the films I could about chess, uh, documentaries on chess. There's a really good one um, called Magnus, Magnus Carlsen. did not hit me that this would be that. So I'm so taken by the fact that you're mentioning that in that way. So it's really cool.
Volkswood accuse playing Towns, playing Beltic and playing Benny, Las Vegas 1966. Three excellent examples of the chess game scoring music from the Queen's Gambit, the original score of which was composed by my guest today, Carlos Rafael Rivera. Now Carlos, what instrumentation did you use for the score for the Queen's Gambit? Oh, well, the instrumentation for the show was kind of developed slowly. I mean, Scott really wanted a piano score overall. He wanted a completely piano-based soundtrack. And uh, we went for that, and we started doing that. And before he shot anything, almost every track I had was piano-based. The main title was written on piano, and then I started to flesh it out a little bit by adding timpani, and then I started adding strings to it. But it was always chamber-like, because that's you know what Walter Tevis had mentioned. But what I realized and we realized is that as we were kind of going along that the story, the piano seemed to fit the orphanage, episode one. But as she gets adopted and moves out into episode two, the instrumentation had to grow as she was growing as a character. And the idea came to me that maybe we could keep going. And by episode seven, there is no piano to be found. So the instrumentation grows with each episode into from piano to orchestra. The only cool thing right, that I really was going for was that every time she saw the games in her head on the ceiling, they were fully orchestral, right? So it's almost like when you're a kid and you have that dream, you're like, oh, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be, you know, whatever it is that you imagine. That thing is always fully formed. It's always fully realized. So every time she played on the ceiling, the games were fully orchestral. But her reality at that moment was just piano. But by the time we get to the Soviet Union or USSR at the time, her reality is now orchestral as opposed to just piano. The thing she saw is now the thing she is. So, Where was the score recorded and was a named orchestra used for the recording? Okay, so the orchestra was the Budapest Art Orchestra. We were recorded at the East Connection Music Recording Studio, the Studio 22. The conductor was Peter Pechtik who I've worked with for the last projects I've done, A Walk Among the Tombstones, Godless, and this one was with Peter. Also, the contractor was Miklos Lukas, who we have uh, worked with as well since then. I've mostly interacted with Miklos, and with Peter, we've always worked on giving notes while we're doing the session remotely. This is something that is interesting because now remote recording, or where the musicians are, or the composer is not with the musicians in the room, is now a thing but it, it's been a thing I've been doing for the last seven years. So almost every project I've been involved in has been, so it was not an unusual experience this time around because of the pandemic. So that's been the MO I've had since I started this. I've never been in a room with the orchestra when they're recording. So adjusting to how things are, are now has been a minimal adjustment. So I'm grateful for the previous experience because it made this one so much easier. What was the size of the orchestra? A full day of recording with the winds, brass, and strings. We had 18 violins, six violas, eight celli, uh, three double basses. We had three horns. We had two trumpets, three trombones, a tuba. We had a f- two flutes, one oboe player who doubled English horn. We had two clarinets and one bassoon. I think all, a double contrabassoon at some point. But yeah, that, that's the orchestra. I think it's about 50 players, you know? Yes, that sounds like a decent-sized orchestra for a TV production. 
Yeah, I think it's a really decent size for what we do because the truth is most recordings that come out now are not just the orchestral sessions, they're hybrids. You have a mix and a blend of the demos that you've made. In my case, I use mostly Spitfire audio, the symphonic strings, symphonic winds, symphonic brass. I used a lot of uh, Spitfire audio libraries and then you combine them with the orchestra that you're recording and you have a much more effective, larger size of a group. And it's how most scores are done today from some of the demo makes it all the way to the final mix. That's why my hat's off to people like Lawrence Manchester who do this kind of thing because they'll take all of the stems from all of the instruments from the live recording and mix it with all of the stems of all the instruments from the demo. And we kind of try to find a good balance where what's represented and got approved by the director and is still there, but it also it has so much more depth than resonance and three-dimensional space because of what happened with the live orchestra that's the life live orchestras bring they do add something that's kind of incomparable at this point and being blessed to have the opportunity to work with that is always something i'm grateful for and you also had two additional music composers azuka ito and david stowe when did they get involved in the scoring process? Well, yeah, the, the idea of having additional music is, is more like you have a blueprint and you become sort of a contractor at some point with certain scenes, especially when you have multiple scenes that have to be delivered at a certain time. So you do feel like, okay, like this is what's going to happen. We need to have this theme because the themes have been worked on for, I was working musically on this for like two years or a year and a half by the time they came on board, right? By the time they come on board, I would like send them a chart and say, these are the themes for the characters. This is what we're doing. These are the moments. This is kind of the music, the aspects of Beth, right? It's the growth music. It's the winning music. It's the love music. There's a theme for towns that I wrote that I had, dee, done. Um, right so i had these little gestures and ideas that were very much going to be appearing they uh, they appear as threads throughout the story and then you have a scene and you have this sense of structure you need anchor points so you're almost giving instructions go they send back your revise they send back your revise they send back your revise but what's awesome about that process is that as you're doing the back and forth you're also working on two other cues and in productions today, that's something that I wouldn't have known, but it is the norm. And what I, I, I like to do that, like to give people credit where credit is due, because it's such a difficult endeavor. Most every department has a team, and music also does, as far as my awareness of it is. And so you do have to have people like Jeremy Levy, one of the great orchestrators. So a lot of time what you do is you'll send a session to Jeremy. Basically, the reason why you actually need orchestrators it can vary from basically you needing someone to do the full orchestration of your piece to actually grabbing the piece and the cue that you've been approved by the director that has been approved by the director and they'll grab that music and transfer the MIDI information which is the how we work on it in the computer into notation for the musicians to read because that has to be done and that's a step by which you have to put all the all the notation on score paper basically for them to read and then you have to create individual parts for every musician from the strings to the winds to the percussion and that is a time-consuming endeavor and in our case basically our orchestration for the most part is done as the cues are getting approved like I'm writing what the instrumentation is going to be and it gets approved by the director and then 
I'll send it to Jeremy and he will actually grab that same orchestration and present it for the orchestra. There are cases in some cues where he may say, hey, maybe I think the horn could take this better and it may sound more effective instead of the trombone, or he may make a, a suggestion as far as the instrument that could play the note or the range. But for the most part, it's a really cool, effective collaboration because, again, you are still writing music as Jeremy is actually preparing the music that's been approved. So it's like this massive endeavor where all these forces are coming together to meet a deadline that means the downbeat of the conductor on the studio stage. And in this case, it's Peter Petsik who's going to be conducting, and it's in Budapest. So parts have to be delivered and set, and it's just insane. It's, it's the most insane rush against the clock, and I really respect the, the other folks who do what I've been able to do in the last few years because it's a very pressured, very pressured endeavor.
That was Plain Girif 1, Plain Girif 2, Borgoth 1 and Bethalone from the 2020 Netflix series The Queen's Gambit with original score composed by my guest today, Carlos Rafael Rivera. And don't worry, there'll be even more music from The Queen's Gambit later on in the show. Now, Carlos, how did you become interested in film music? Um, I have been wanting to do film music since I was a kid, but I didn't think I'd ever do it. I just knew I loved film music, if that makes sense. Like, I would watch movies like The Great Train Robbery, uh, Star Wars um, by Jerry Goldsmith, the first one, the latter by Williams, of course, and then E.T. and Poltergeist and those movies that I knew the music was doing something in them, if that makes sense. Like, music was doing, having an effect on the story, and I was aware of it. I was aware of it in uh, The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek II with James Horner. I was even aware of it in 48 Hours by James Horner. And I was starting to take guitar lessons at 11. I had taken piano lessons when I was six, and then we moved from Guatemala to Costa Rica. And then when I moved to Panama, we took guitar lessons when I was 11. And then the piano was always around. You know, my sister had taken piano lessons. And then it was just a sort of thing where I started doing music because my brother was in a rock band. I started playing guitar, like electric guitar. And by 14, I really started getting serious about playing guitar. But film music was something I just admired from afar. Especially when you're growing up in Central America, the last thing you'll ever think you're going to get to do is being able to talk to people like yourself. If that, you know what I mean? It's, it's so surreal to be able to have this conversation. And uh, for me, at the time, you just always wanted to do it. And as I moved to L.A., as opportunities started to happen, they only came together, I think, through a lot of serendipity. You know, but I ended up training to become a classical composer, and that was the path I really started following at university. And it wasn't until later that when the opportunities came, I started mentoring with Randy Newman at the University of Southern California through a mentorship program because I had been in a rock band and I was doing classical music, not because I was studying film music. It was just he was my mentor for a while. I got to start going to see sessions. And then as I'm taking lessons with Scott Frank and he's starting to do a movie, I'm starting to find out that he's working with James Newton Howard. And I'm like, oh, my God, he knows James Newton Howard. You know, I'm like a fan you know of all everybody and and so once I got my hands on being the opportunity I felt like I had been prepared through the life experiences I've had and the love for film that I have and continue to have I do feel like you know whatever it's called the imposter syndrome or whatever people say that at some point someone's going to find me out but in the meantime I'm enjoying the ride that's for sure How did you get your first assignment? Well, my first job actually came from what prepared me to be able to sort of get into the Walk Among the Tombstones was actually another guitar student I had. His name was Michael Legato, and he was taking private lessons at at the Pasadena Conservatory where I was teaching, and his mom would bring him. So I only knew him as a guitar student, and I had had an orchestral piece that won some awards. They did like an announcement. Conservatory said, hey, Carlos... uh, orchestral piece got performed here and it got critiqued here so and then he got as part of the recipient you know they receive all these newsletters and stuff he's like hey do you have a recording of that piece I was like oh sure man and I gave it to him a CD because that's how long ago this was and he came back like a few weeks later hey I played back this music for my dad and he really likes it he and he he's doing something he's making a little movie he'd like to talk to you about it and I was like 
okay, that's cool, man. What's your dad's name? He goes, Rob Legato. I go, cool. And I went home and I looked him up and I, and I realized it's the special effects guru. I mean, he is the guy who's won three Academy Awards. Most recently, The Jungle Book for the film. He did Titanic. He directed a few episodes of Star Trek way back when. And, but he actually did uh, Avatar. Like he was really involved in the technology that was used in developing Avatar. Hugo, he won an Academy Award for that. I mean, the guy's amazing. And I was like, oh, my God, because I, I only knew his mom. I never, you know, it's like, oh, hi, how are you? Great. He's doing well, blah, blah, blah. As a student, you're talking. And then I met with him, and he gave me the opportunity. He was doing this small project for Adobe where they were showing how, you know, I, I don't know what it was, one of their software applications. And it was a little noir film. And he goes, oh, I heard your music. You're going to be great. I, I, I was like, thank you. And then I got home. I was like, what am I going to do? I don't even know how to do this. And then I talked to a couple of friends. They're like, oh, you got to get this software called Logic. It's really cool. I was like, okay, but I use PC. He goes, well, you're going to have to get a Mac. And then I had a friend of my wife's lend me her Mac. And then I got the software to learn how to do this. So I did this whole project on borrowed software with a computer that wasn't mine. It was a small little project, but at that time I was mentoring with Randy Newman. So I got to show him what I was doing. And he was like, no, he was talking about rhythm. He was telling me, oh, you got to think about dialogue and all these things that I wouldn't have thought of. So he kind of really mentored me in that first project. And it went well. I mean, I was able to get it approved. And so I had an idea of what I was doing. So getting to work with Scott and once this opportunity for a walk among the tombstones came um, was really surreal for me. It was like one of the most incredible uh, opportunities I'd ever had. So Scott Frank has hired you to score his 2014 thriller, A Walk Among the Tombstones. What were your thoughts on day one working on that score? Don't get fired. That's all that's going through your mind is don't get replaced <laughs> because I'm like watching and I had access to the dailies and that was in a moment in itself, you know, when you enter the name and you access the studio and you enter the password and all of a sudden you see it like a tear comes over, you well up because you're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm doing this. This is happening. Don't screw it up. Don't screw it up. It was really about getting the story right. And it was again, another adapted from a Lawrence Block novel. And it was really cool because the adaptation, Scott's one of the great adaptation writers. He adapts really well, out of sight. And other stories that have been adapted by him are very effective. He understands how to kind of reduce a long story, a long novel into a two-hour engaging audience engrossing experience. I really read both, but I really started reacting to the screenplay Scott had that he sent me. And I started doing the script movies. The idea of doing an iMovie and scoring the scene was born then and as I started sending it to him he started reacting we started finding the color to it so he started playing that music that I was sending to him to the producers uh, because at the moment I wasn't sure if I was on the production I was almost not on all the way till the end to the point that where I couldn't be fired because their schedule was done that's how I felt about it but he really championed me. He really kept, you know, showing the music. He even showed it to the actors or the, on the set. He's like, this is the tone of what we're going for in the music, you know, just so you can feel it. And I was like, you played it for them? You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like a fan, you know. Liam Neeson heard my music, you know, stuff like that. You know, it does cross your mind all the time. And then uh, the more important aspect is not so much like the actors, but really when the producers are listening to it, you know, the producers approving. Because... I got onto it thinking, well, I'll write the temp music. I'll write temporary music for this to be cut to, and then you'll get a professional. 
you know, that was my mindset. But then I just somehow made it all the way to the end. And so it was just a dream, a dream come true, man, without a doubt.
And that was a suite of music from the 2014 thriller A Walk Among the Tombstones, written and directed by Scott Frank and starring Liam Nielsen, Dan Stevens and David Harbour, with original score composed by my guest today, Carlos Rafael Rivera. Now, Carlos, in 2017, you worked again with Scott Frank on your first Netflix collaboration, the Western miniseries Godless. Tell us all about Godless. Godless is funny. Godless goes back to maybe two years into teaching him. Just like somewhere in 2005. I started teaching him in 2003. So I go to his office in 2005 to teach him for a lesson. And he's like, hey, why don't you read? I, I want you to read the scene I just finished. And it was a scene of Jeff Daniels' character. He becomes Jeff Daniels. But I forgot the bad guy's name. I know it's Roy Good and Frank Griffin. Frank Griffin on a campfire next to these settlers that are moving out. And he came into the campground. And he's about to basically kill them all or do something horrible. And he sits and he grabs a little kid. He puts him on his knee and he starts telling him his story. And I'm reading it. And I'm like, oh, my God, dude, this is so creepy. He goes, yeah, there's this thing I'm working on called Godless. It's, a, it's like a Western I go, wow, that's incredible. Okay, take out the guitar. Let's go to scales. You know what I mean? Like, literally, this was 2005. It was like, he's sharing a scene with me that he had just written. I was like, oh, this is so cool. Okay, but let's get to guitar class because now we have 50 minutes instead of the hour to get the lesson going, you know? And I would have never believed that if they told me then that you're going to be scoring that, you know, that it was what it was going to be. But by the time 2016 or 15 came out, a year after or so of Walk Among the Tombstones, he sent me the the screenplay for Godless. And I remember reading that scene again. I was like, oh, my God, I read this like 10 years ago. And he goes, we're, we're going to expand this. It's going to become a miniseries for Netflix. So it's going to be from the screenplay now that's about two and a half hours. It's going to be like seven hours. So we're going to really expand all the characters, go deep in it. It's an original story. It's not an adaptation. So the same process where as I started looking for, you always look through a screenplay, you read through it, and then you look for what are called the set pieces. You look for what pieces, you know, I know this is going to need music. Like imagine if you're reading any story, you're like, oh, music would be great for this, right? There's no difference. The same exact thing. You just read it. You're like, oh, this needs music. So you pick it and then you make the iMovie and you score it and then you send that. And that's sort of been the process, and, and it started to really sort of galvanize itself with Godless. He even played some of the music I wrote for a couple of sequences, especially at the end of episode six. You know, there's this sort of like how they got to where they got to kind of a scene. And that music, he told me he played it for them on set that day, so they would get in the mood. I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. So there are these little things that by making getting involved like I said early on get to all the way through and there's other things that you do that you feel very excited about that just don't get it you know past the first assembly but the process definitely of again of being involved early on has always outweighed whatever the latter option would be for me
and that was music from the 2017 Netflix Western drama Godless. Written directed by Scott Frank and starring Jack O'Connell, Michelle Dockerhy, Thomas Brody Sangster, Sam Waterston, and Jeff Daniels, with original score composed by my guest today, Carlos Rafael Rivera. Now, Carlos, can you remember your feelings when you first heard your music performed on the scoring stage? Oh, yeah. I mean, I I know specifically it was... Actually, it's weird. The feeling you're talking about was mostly when, during A Walk Among the Tombstones, I had done a script movie. It's sort of not what you're saying, but it is in a weird way. Because I had done, a, you know, music that was reacting to a sequence that he wrote. And then he ended up changing the sequence that he wrote based on the music I sent him. And the opening titles for The Walk Among the Tombstones were written to the music I had written. Were shot, I'm sorry, were shot to the music I had written. And he sent me, he goes, look what I did, or look what we did, you know. That moment was like, oh my God, dude, I got, I was creatively involved. I, the music I wrote made, helped make what we're seeing happen. You know, that was my first overwhelm. And the live orchestra, I had been composing for a few years. So I had the fortune of that feeling of an orchestra playing your music, you know, back in 2004 and in 2007 or eight, I had to perform a couple of performances in Boston. And in 2010, I had an orchestra play my music here in Miami with Arturo Sandoval on trumpet. It was a trumpet concerto I wrote. So I was aware of of that feeling of, of your music being performed live. But the music being assembled to picture and, and helping construct story like I saw as a kid when I was six, seven, eight, you know, those, and, and knowing that it's all of these forces coming together, the editing, the lighting, the cinematography, the acting, to make something that's powerful. That was, that was the moment for me. Um, it was just beyond belief. Is there a particular genre you enjoy writing music for? Oh yeah, no, I don't. I would, I would love to, you know, work on a good story. I think it just comes from the moment you read the screenplay. If you're really in, engaged in it, um, that for me has been the most attractive thing. The genre itself doesn't matter. You know, I've been very blessed in the three projects to do very three very different things, from noir thriller to western to now a, a underdog story or a coming of age story that to me is the beauty of this field because you get to experiment in different sandboxes almost creatively as long as the story is good the genre itself doesn't really matter and you can read that on the page and i've been very blessed to work with someone like scott who writes as well as he does i mean you read any of his screenplays and some of them i think are online you could just google them as pdfs they're page turners you know you can't help but keep reading and that takes a certain level of craft that only people like him carry and have earned if anything the jokes i i tend to make you know in interviews is that i i love to read his emails because they're so well structured you know i just anything he writes is worth reading you know he's he's that guy he's, he's really that good at what he does does your music have any influences people like um john williams jerry goldsmith i mean it's mostly the old guard what's considered the old guard now, Randy Newman, undoubtedly, his skill set and his craft, and not just in film music, but just songwriting, is one of the great songsmiths of all time. Those are folks I love. Currently, composers I'm inspired by today are people like uh, 
Daniel Pemberton, I think Nicholas Brittell. I think I think people like Daniel Pemberton, you can give them like a pencil and a, a baseball cap and they'll make music out of it. And I feel the same. Nicholas Brittell has a different kind of approach, but he's very effective and I think he understands story really well and he's good at thematic writing and I love that um, about him. And I think uh, going back to the other folks, of course, Giacchino and Desplat, Alexander Desplat, I mean, these are names that you hear all the time. They're just as influential to me as they are on anyone because of the quality of what they do. Alan Silvestri's stuff has always been something I've admired a lot. But when it comes down to it, if I had like that, if you ask the question of the, the island, who do you take with you to the island, you know, listen to, I would probably stick with Goldsmith and Williams only because there's something that we don't hear much of and the level of craft at which they're working. It's different. I don't know how to explain it. I don't think they could do scores like the more current composers could do, but at the same time, the opposite is true. And I really love how they use theme and develop theme. And they both have their own unique approaches, but they're both just so excellent at it. What I like about Jerry Goldsmith is in the interviews, he's just very pragmatic. He doesn't really try to say anything more than just what's necessary about i don't know where his egomania level was but as far as how he carried himself in interviews it was it was always admirable to me and i just like that he was just very practical about what he talked about and i've learned a lot from him watching his interviews i really respect williams as well because he's just very respectful he's like a gentleman if that makes any sense in which how in the way he carries himself in interviews but goldsmith was always very matter of fact and other people that are really learned a lot from is is even Randy Newman because he's one of those people that is truly himself you know in any room he doesn't change for anybody he's just who he is and that that kind of stuff applies to to life not just music I'm definitely influenced by them without a doubt are you working on any assignments at present no I mean at this moment I've I've literally had a two-month vacation and all I've been doing is spending time working on trying to get the studio done and and like I, like I've been investing into the studio, like upgrading it, to and and hopefully there'll be more work. I don't know. I mean, it's it's just it's been a really welcome break because it was two years of of insanity, and it got really really crazy from about November on into July. So the break's been really welcome. I also teach at the University of of Miami at the Frost School of Music, and. I run the film scoring program there and the, and the media writing and production program, actually, music production program as well, both graduate and undergrad. So I have a lot of work going on as uh, on my day job, if you want to call it that. It's just it's, I've been teaching forever. It's part of who I am. I'm pretty busy with that on its own. So projects as they come along, it's always a welcome thing. The idea of getting to work on storytelling that is at the level of, of people like Scott is, is a dream. So, but, but I love the process. And for me, the process is everything, you know, who knows how it's going to turn out. I had no idea that this show would get to be number one on Netflix now, as, as I've been reading over the weekend. And it's like as popular as it is because it's about chess, because who would think that a story about chess would be as good as it is. But I think it really is a testament to Scott. I think as a director, he's really in full form now. And, and the cast is Anya Taylor-Joy, who's just incredible she's going to be the next furiosa i think for uh, the mad max project and she was a wonder to watch in the dailies i was like oh my gosh i even told the, the cinematographer i called him steven miser i was like i can't believe that you're working with her you know because she's such a wonder to work with yes i could see that anya taylor joy's 
performance is all in her face. She doesn't have to say anything and you know exactly what she's thinking. It's a mesmerising piece of acting. Yeah, that's the thing that blew me away in the, in the dailies was her, her face and actually how professional she was. Because, you know, the actor's job is rather unglorious in a way. They get all the glory, but in the moment, they're just seventh take, same line, do it again. Eighth take, same line, do it again. And you can see how professional they are. And she was just truly uh, a gem. You know, she'd be like, okay, you want to do it again? No problem, sure. Okay, let's do it again. Okay, you want it again? No problem. Like, so professional. Every single daily I saw, I was like, I can't take it. This girl's a wonder. So it was a pleasure to get to score her because she, her eyes are so obviously unique, but also it's beyond what's there. It's her face. She really understands the camera. She knows how to work with it very clearly. And the camera happens to love her back really well. So she carries this story really well. And so I think a lot of things came together and I'm grateful to be part of it. Do you enjoy the mix of scoring and teaching? Yeah, I love teaching. No, I love teaching. I, I love teaching. And uh, teaching is part of who I am. And I, and I love writing music too. I mean, I and I'm teaching about what the world I'm in. And what I like about that more than anything is that I'm teaching about it while I'm practicing it now. It's not something I did and and happened 20 years ago where the technology's changed and I'm an irrelevant teacher. I think as a teacher, I feel much more relevant because I get to do projects where I'm learning how assets are delivered, the technologies that are being used in order to kind of convey the story and communicate with the production team and the post-production team. And that, to me, it almost feels like I'm bringing this information into from the trenches into the academic setting with the students and telling them, okay, don't do this and don't do that because I did both of those things and I blew it. You know, so I get to actually tell them to learn from the mistakes I'm making. But yeah, the schedule as it is, I've been very blessed by having the support of the University of Miami and the Frost School and being able to teach exactly what I'm doing. It's, it's exactly in line. It's not like, you know, I'm teaching about you know, underwater basket weaving classes or, or something completely different from what I do. It's, it's music and it's music all the time. So it's, it's very fulfilling for me. What exactly is the class you teach? The program is called uh, Media Writing and Production Program at the Frost School of Music. And it's, uh, but I teach film scoring. One, foundations, and the second semester we teach uh, extensions, which is really basically thinking about it from the moment the, the cue gets approved to making it, which is where Jer people like Jeremy Levy, the orchestra, you now become the orchestrator and have to start preparing the parts and score to get it recorded by the musicians at the Frost School. And, and the Mancini Institute is actually housed there. So it's a really cool thing. That's fascinating. Finally, Carlos, where can we see The Queen's Gambit? And where can we find the soundtrack album which features your wonderful music? Oh, okay. Um, the Queen's Gambit has been out since uh, October 23rd on Netflix, and it's available only on Netflix. I think the soundtrack is available on any of the streaming services or Amazon. You can purchase it there on iTunes as well. And it's, man, I, I've had the most thrilling weekend, I think, of my life to be able to see something that you're involved with get the notice and attention of, of so many people. I've been getting a lot of emails and or personal messages people saying oh my gosh the score is so beautiful and without a doubt it's it's uh it's just it's just beyond words it's hard to put in words what it's been like to have the weekend that i've been through but i'm grateful again beyond words for it and i really hope that if anybody that's listening gets a chance to enjoy the show 
can appreciate the work, not just the music at all, but really kind of like the sound design that Wiley Statement did and, and the cinematography and, and pay attention to the costume and the acting, of course, but like all of these elements. And this is something I've been, I'm constantly learning about all of these aspects that are involved in helping the storytelling and helping you get involved as an audience. There, every aspect is seen. It's, music is just a small part of it, but when they're all working together, it's an experience that that is memorable. It becomes the soundtrack of your life, if you will. Carlos Rafael Rivera, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining us today. <laughs> well, thank you so much, man. I'm glad we got to talk, and really, it is a pr- privilege to meet you, man, and a pleasure, pleasure to talk to you. I do hope you enjoyed our interview with film and TV composer Carlos Rafael Rivera. I leave you with a final suite of music from Carlos's wonderful score for The Queen's Gambit, the soundtrack album of which is now available digitally from Maisie Music Publishing. The cues in the suite are entitled The Final Game and Shagram. Let's play. My thanks once again for Carlos Rafael Rivera for joining us today. And until we meet again, for me, Jason Drury, it's take care and happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sinsound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to Tee Public to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>